Hello, and welcome to the Silicon Alley Podcast. Super excited you could join me today. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. And today, I sit down with Monica Brown and Michael Odeico, the founders of Direct Line of Compliance, a software and consulting business that Monica and Michael built from their dining room table. In the first year of business, they did over a million dollars in gross revenue, and neither one of them studied compliance or software engineering in school. In fact, both of them were communications majors who met in college, fell in love, were living the good life in the entertainment industry before they needed to search for a more palatable lifestyle. You'll learn from their story of how to build a successful company, the value of being lifelong learners, and how to break into a new industry with confidence. In addition, they share how as Black business owners, no one has the power to offend them, and how alignment with your passion and mission can overcome race and business. A little background on Monica and Michael. Monica Brown and Deco oversees the daily operations and sales functions of direct line of compliance. With more than 25 years of experience in sales and project management, Monica uses her skills and business development expertise to grow a profitable client base in the private and public sectors. Through her career, Monica has managed Fortune 100 corporate accounts ranging from two to $5 million. She volunteers with Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority, World Youth Foundation, and others. Michael Odeco is the VP, Senior Risk Manager of Direct Line of Compliance. His ingenuity and solution-driven nature inspired him to develop and produce two innovative compliance software tools, Color Code It, Sweet for one-touch compliance submissions, and Chameleon Docs for form and document analytics enabled by web portals and email campaigns. Michael holds several certifications and memberships with the ISACA, the IAPP. He's a mentor, speaker, and technical director for World Youth Foundation. He's also an alumnus of the University of Texas at Austin and Texas Southern University. And for those joining for the first time, on the Silicon Valley podcast, I talk to entrepreneurs, VCs, and top performers to understand what it truly takes to grow and scale a business. You'll get actual advice that you can apply in your own business and life. So if you have not already, pound that subscribe button and follow Silicon Alley Podcast so you get notified when episodes drop every Friday. And if you hear something you like, please be sure to share the podcast with others. So without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this insightful and actionable episode of the Silicon Alley Podcast featuring the incredible Monica Brown and Michael Adeyeko. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate. Caught in a circle saying, I'll never leave this place. Welcome, Monica and Michael. Super excited to have you on the Silicon Valley podcast today. It's great to sit down. I'm, uh, I'm excited to dive in today and hear a little bit about your story. And I think uh, you guys are the first couple entrepreneurs that I've had on the podcast. So I'm super excited to kind of talk about that dynamic as well and how you manage the business relationship while not uh, killing each other. I think that's uh, <laughs> a testament. How did you know that? No. <laughs> well, you're so here. Worthy. That was my that was my uh, that was my triggers that you guys are here today. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> Takes on a whole new dimension when you have to move the office home during COVID. Too. Oh yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. I'd love to start there. So, talk to me a little bit about um, how you guys met and maybe the entrepreneurial aspect is that something that was just boom we're going to start a business together and then you kind of fell in love afterwards or uh, how talk to me a little bit about your backgrounds and how uh, you guys came to know each other well actually we met at texas southern university we were in um (laughs) the line picking out classes and michael saw me and i'll let you tell his part of the story um but we started out as students we were just completely in love had no idea thoughts about starting business, anything like that. Didn't even talk or discuss that. Um, I was a broadcast journalism major. And so as soon as I graduated, it was like three weeks later, I was in radio advertising um, for, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the name of the company or not, but it was um, 
various companies, majority of them with CBS. And from there, um, I thought I was going to be working forever. I was fine. I was happy. And then I got pregnant and said, you know what, Michael, I think I just want to be a wife and mother. (laughs) So we kind of made that journey. And the next thing I know is that Michael says, I got this concept and this great idea. And I've always been in sales. That's been my entire career. And by accident, one day we saw an invoice and saw what Michael was billing out for, for a company. And I was like, wait a minute. You mean we could be making some of that money? And um, he kind of talked me into the entrepreneurial route. That was not my dream at all. I was perfectly happy with having a nine to five and forever looking at my 401k, being happy with that, being content. And so he says, I think we should start some companies. And so we did. And um, he'll tell you about our journey to the software. We were not at all trying to be software entrepreneurs. But as life would have it and as our journey goes, that's exactly what we are and what we do. It has been the most exciting thing I've ever done in my entire life because every day is different. Every day is different. I thought radio was crazy. That's nothing coming to the software industry, people. (laughs) Well, to rewind back from her uh, lightning description there, Yes, we met in college and it was in the registration line. Uh, what she didn't tell you that she was standing next to another very nice looking oh tall goodness. guy. <laughs> and me being my, what is it, 21 year old cocky self said, hey, get you guys together? And, <laughs> and, she was, and he was like, yes, very defensively. And she was like, no, we're not. So I said, cool, I'm in. <laughs> uh, the thing about that registration line is I'm, I was an undecided major. So um, I didn't know what I was gonna major in. So part of my Mac was, uh, hey, so what are you majoring in? She said communications. And I have a communications degree today (laughs) because I tried to get every class I could with her. She was pretty cute. Crazy. And uh, that's how I decided what my major is. And you ask how two communications people, that's how we became two communications people. I wasn't planning to be a communications people at all. And uh, so anyway, um, college was great, graduated um, and went on to a wonderful show business and um, stage career. Um, I was producer and director at a couple of TV stations. Uh, I toured the country, 21 tours, I think, um, in, in production and lighting. I still do some lighting as a hobby. And uh, that was really, really great. But um, after so many of those tours, I was still dating Monica and it was, believe it or not, 10 years later, um, she said, you can do that all you like. I'm not going to stop you from doing what you love to do, but we're not getting married with you touring 11 months out of the year. So one day when I got the offer from Janet Jackson um, and I came back from the airport, I said, hey, babe, I'm going with Janet. They call her booty. It's great. Oh, my gosh. Can you sit on the phone? She'll be happy to hear that. And she had no smiles. And I said, show this career is over. She goes, it's over. So quick show business career. I lied on my resume that my lighting design computer stuff uh, was IT related and got a job as a technical writer. I didn't even know how to surf the internet at that point, And I could barely make my way through Microsoft Word, uh, but I got the job anyway and learned fast. And there went my IT career, uh, <laughs> developer, project manager, and eventual software company owner. Time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I, you know, we've known each other now for, and I was doing the math. It's, I guess it's been almost five years mm-hmm. now. Yeah, and yes. I did not know any of that about the early. <laughs> I had no clue. Oh, so, yeah. it was fun. <laughs> so, yeah, what were some of the things that you learned during that process? It sounds like you know, 
Monica, you were you were happy, uh, happy and content in the industry, and it sounds like you actually were as well, Michael. So, like, what were some of the just interesting stories and things that you learned in um, production and entertainment? Well, in production and entertainment, um, you know, I learned that you know I would be in a different city every week, but you know, the size and the dimension and the show had to fit identically in every city, in every theater, in every situation, in every stadium, in every prison, in every everything. And it had to be pretty much exactly what it was. So I learned, I think even there, and I, I'm only really realizing this as you asked that question, thank you, is that the concept of multiple dimension really kind of took shape in, in my show business career. And it says basically, my whole career in consulting has been revolved around the stating, statement, it's not exactly what you think, all right? The answer to everything impossible is that it's not exactly what you think. If you think that the same show can happen the same way down to the last inch in the same dimension in 25 different cities in 25 different weeks, you're both right and wrong, aren't you? Because it can look exactly the same, yet it is not in so many ways, but in one dimension, it absolutely is. So I really think that the whole concept of how you picture things and how things fit together and how they can be very different, but very the same. And the intersection of all that being what the world really needs to know and will pay you hundreds of dollars an hour to figure out for them, I think started taking shape then, but I would have never known it until many years later. And for me, it was about building relationships. What I loved about sales in the very beginning is it was about talking to people. Everyone has this fear of asking people for money. Yes, that's a big part of it, but it is also about building relationship, finding out what people really need, um, even asking some of the very tough questions and going to some places that a lot of people don't like to go about budgeting, about financing. And that all played into my development into sales. Um, I started out as ha at Hallmark selling cards okay a lot of them a lot of cards <laughs> <laughs> and from there um we had a visiting professor our general manager come from a television station um to one of our broadcast classes and i didn't know i was gonna be the next oprah winfrey and it was like okay i think that's what i want to do because i enjoy speaking and talking and more talking and the funny thing is that i'll never forget i got an internship and I was invited to come to the television station. I was gonna be in the news department. And I'll never forget the first day I drove up and I looked over to my left and all the cars I saw were nice cars. There were Hondas, Toyotas, you know, things like that. Uh, some basic cars, some sedans. I look over to my right and I see Mercedes, I see Audis, I see convertibles, I see Cadillacs. I was like, oh, what do those people do? And they were like, those are the account executives, those are the salespeople. I was like, you know, I think I'm going into sales. <laughs> so um, yeah, money can be a motivator, especially when you're very young, you just don't know. But what I did discover is the ability to build relationships. Extremely important in anything that you do. And yes, that's important to sales. I'm not trying to be the snake oil salesperson, but I just want to be your friend because it's more like, let's really get to the crux of what you need, what's important to the organization and see if we have the proper product to make that happen. It could be yes, it could be no, and maybe not right now. So it's all about building value in people and in time and making sure that you know your market and who the decision makers are as well. 
That's why we make a pretty good team. We are <laughs> very, very different. But both of those kind of qualities are really mm-hmm. needed from the say, from the whole life cycle of, uh, you know, acquiring projects, uh, satisfying people's needs and doing it in unique ways, which I'm sure we'll get into later. Yeah, absolutely. And I was, you hit the nail on the head. I think there's, <laughs> what's great is that you guys complement each other so well in terms of skill sets and abilities, which obviously when you're building out a company, especially you know, a, a startup and, and all that stuff. There's just, there's, you've got to have those skills and you've got to have complementary skills because right. there's just so much to manage. Right. So how have you, as you moved into the, the phase where, uh, Michael, you had to stay home and, uh, and not go around and touring and, um, uh, Monica, you saw that he was starting to make, uh, some pretty good money in this consulting, consulting business. Talk about that kind of process and transition, uh, into the entrepreneurial landscape and then would love to hear a little bit more about uh, the company. That's actually an interesting story in that transition. Like I said, I lied on my resume and I said I was this great <laughs> IT person and I wasn't. But one thing that I said um, in every interview, and it's still true today, what's your greatest skill? I hate that question, but I also like it now. And that is that I can learn new concepts faster than anyone you've ever seen. And that's critical. Uh, I've also learned as a, as a hiring person later that it's much more important to hire someone that can learn something very, very fast than someone that already knows what they're doing uh, because of my own experience. It's very interesting how things change every day. So you better have someone that can adapt to that and learn very, very quickly as their greatest skill. But I started out, my little sister, who was on an internship and extremely intelligent, found me a job as a technical writer for for $35,000 a year, <laughs> which was a big come down even from show business, but it kept me home. Monica was making 200 and something thousand a year, even back then anyway. Um, so, I mean, that was plenty of money. She says, I will make money. You just get something honest <laughs> and start on something different. So I did that. No booty tours. I got no you. booty no, tours. No. <laughs> you know, I still, never mind. Nah. <laughs> But um, they, they recognized some talent and I got, you know, big raises like every 90 days. And, you know, that went up very, very fast because they wanted to keep me and they knew they had some talent. Um, eventually, fast forward a little bit in the next, oh, I'd say four or five years, you know, I went from doing all of that to managing contracts, billing out up to uh, $800, $900 an hour for Ernst & Young. And I was getting a portion of that, of course, not that much, but point is I was worth that and built, uh, uh, you know, the career to the point where we said, if you're billing out $800 an hour and we got a third of that, you know, um, we would be doing not so badly. And you got kind of a little reputation here. So why don't we go for it? So we went for um, uh, an opportunity when the energy market was, um, you know, it's a combination of some blackouts on the East Coast and through Canada and 9-11 Commission all saying mm-hmm. that the bulk electric system was America's biggest risk. Um, I'm not going to go into that too much because those kind of things are a little secret. I don't want to put out on the air. But suffice it to say, it was the best opportunity for consulting because there was like million dollar a day fines for power companies that weren't, you know, being compliant and, and operating their companies correctly. So we jumped into that. We had fabulous success in our first year as a startup. We built almost a million dollars gross from our dining table, literally. <laughs> wow, that's and, impressive. I just want to pause there because yeah. there's 
I don't, I think there's a very, very small handful of companies that can say that they've done that. So that's just mm. incredible. Yeah, that's true. Statistically, it was less than 1%. We found out. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> easily, easily. Right. But, um, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, what was happening was, you know, you got to look in the market, where whatever industry you're in for when everyone does not know what they're doing and everyone is looking for answers and you can confidently come with those answers um, based on your experience or based on your knowledge or based on something that you bring to the table, people are going to be very receptive. Um, I will be very honest. There are people that didn't like us, people that didn't see literally an African-American couple coming in and telling them what to do and so on and so forth and everything. And the bottom line was that we simply knew what we were talking about and we had better answers than anyone else. And they couldn't afford not to bring us on. So when the stakes are heavily, heavily against you, I would say, know what you're doing. Know it cold. There can't be an answer you don't know. Really, you have to know it that cold. And then come in there and make it, a make it a risk not to hire you because of what you can put out there and your worth and people will pay you lots and lots of money in order to solve problems that nobody else can yeah there's a lot a couple things that i want to dive in on on there first in terms of identifying those types of opportunities like you said you happen to just be see that opportunity where companies were being fined a million dollars a day in the in, in energy sector how do you identify those type of opportunities as an entrepreneur? What advice do you have for, for other people that are looking for those types of opportunities? And how did you, how did you really nail that as, as a, something that you could fill as a startup? This was pre-COVID time. Keep that in mind, okay? And with me being in sales, I see the value of face-to-face as being golden. Unfortunately, a lot of that has changed uh, now that we can't go see people and feel their energy and have a chance to really look into their eyes, besides Zoom, of course, our other um, platforms such as this. But I will say that once I knew that we were going to target the power utility industry, it started out that way because Michael did a training for another company. We were hired as independent consultants to do that training. And from that training, it turned into consulting for this company as well. So that opportunity led to another opportunity just by us being out there. You have to get out there. And it can be absolutely terrifying. And I get that because I'm not an engineer, knew nothing at all about utilities besides turning on the lights and paying my bills. That's about the extent of my knowledge. I was not trained to do that. However, I did understand the concept and the whole knowledge behind training. And if you give me some materials, I could study that. And then we could dissect whatever we needed to and present it in a palatable format. So that was very important. So I would take the time to do the research to find out the different organizations where people were meeting. Um, I'm very fortunate right now that I have um, an organization that we belong to several organizations within the power utility market that you can go and talk to real decision makers. I was not approaching purchasing officers. I was not talking to administrative people. I was looking for the corporate executives because of what we had to offer. And it's a harder task, but you need to know where they are. I think LinkedIn does a fabulous job of getting you to the table and giving you a nice little snapshot as to who they are. But we all know that we put the pretty little perfect pictures up there (laughs) and we only talk about the good things and not so much as the troubling parts. And let's face it, compliance is not sexy. Nobody 
nobody wants to talk about their dirty little secrets, right? So you have to be in an atmosphere where people can relax. And a lot of times that happens at a conference where people are not at their desk behind that big power altar that they have. Um, so they get a chance to kind of, you know, not necessarily just tell you everything, but they get a chance to feel who you are and what you have to offer. People, on they are bombarded with so much information. And how do you stand out? Well, of course, I believe in a lot of good referrals. Yeah. And so one referral would lead to another. If we did a really good job or if we didn't do such a good job, I wanted to know that as well and what we could do to change that. And so referrals helped out. Um, there was not a lot of cold calling. It's very hard to do cold calling in this particular industry because we're such a niche market. So what we had to find out is like, who do we target specifically, especially in the public sector? That's even deeper dive that you have to make. But in the private sector, people are a little more open to talk and hear what you have to say. So, of course, we reached out to people um, like Gardner, who found us. We were not at all familiar with who Gardner happened to be as a software company. That catapulted us to a different level. People started reading their articles, what they had to say about us. We had an incredible account executive. So, <laughs> so with there. that um, in mind, um, that kind of gave us more leverage and it got us into more doors because we could tell them what we had done. Naturally, we're going to toot our horn the loudest and say what we can do. But when other people can speak on your behalf, that makes a huge difference. And that's another reason why I think I like some of the things that I see on platforms such as LinkedIn and some social media markets where it talks about recommendations. Um, we don't believe in hiding our names and our face. My handle is very simple. It's very boring. It's like Monica Brown. And so it's like, I want you to know who I am and what we're doing. I don't have a made up name like Compliance Queen, but maybe I should. I'll think about that. <laughs> uh, but it's things like that, that you really get a chance to get in front of people. And that's going to be important. COVID has presented a very different scenario for us now. Um, a lot of people are Zoomed out. A lot of people don't get a chance to meet people because they're not on the panel. So it kind of presents a different challenge. Therefore, I'm writing a lot more emails. And believe it or not, I still handwrite notes to people because it's very rare that people get a handwritten letter and they will open it much quicker than an email. Mm -hmm. yeah. true. So that can be a big difference too. Well, Monica always comes at it from the sales side to my delight. Uh, and I normally come at it from the operations side. I'll say this, um, you know, because our story is kind of one of beauty and the beast. <laughs> I'm the beauty. I end up being the beast. And both have their advantages because as the beast, I'm the one that has to come and I, I gotta, I've got to be very, very straight with my clients. We've got to delve into your pain. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to call your baby ugly, but you've got a problem and I'm here to solve it. You know, and at some point, if you don't want me to solve it, then tell me to leave. But if you want me to stay and fix your problem, then we have to talk about some difficult things. That's not what Monica does. As a matter of fact, her uh, invention of the no surprise meeting is great. It means Michael's going to come here. He's going to piss you off. And when you get mad at him, call me and I will cool him out. You don't have to fight with him. No. Talk to me and I'll get him straight. And, and we work it that way because I have to be able to say the truth. And she yeah. has to be able to smooth things over. And so we do play off of that a lot. But I will say this, and this is the best advice I can give to your audience, is one of my favorite sayings is structure always comes before the meaning. 
you are not always going to know what you're doing. You are not always going to know every last single answer. Absolutely. But the structure is the key. Because if you can offer a client structure, the next thing you can do is to ask a lot of questions of the client. Why? You have to. I've just come into your company. I don't assume that I know everything about you. Therefore, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. But the answers serve twofold. They not only tell me about the client, they tell me about the industry and I get to learn at the same time. And as soon as my client has said something, then I know it, right? But you might have thought that I knew it beforehand. So you kind of play the questions because the other thing that I say a lot of time is usually the answer lies within the question itself. When I answer questions, it's normally 80% repeating the question in a different format and adding the 10% of what I know to make the complete answer. And people say, you're a genius. I'm not a genius. I'm just very, very good at structuring the type of information that I take in and give back and solve, which led us to a big epiphany I had that you'll probably ask me about in a minute, but I'll go ahead and say it now is that my opinion wasn't worth a hill of beans and neither was anybody else's. And I said, we have to do something that puts us above everybody else that's out here just giving their opinion about what might work, where it might and might not. Because if you're Ernst & Young or if you're a big company like that, nobody's gonna get fired for hiring you because what you say should be right, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But if you're a small company, they're gonna say, I'm gonna get fired if anything they say is wrong. <laughs> So we had to have something a lot more powerful to be able to say, this isn't my opinion. This is a structured, solid um, answer and, um, and system that we're gonna give you that's gonna solve your problems with very, very little risk and have that to float and fly. So that's what I say to, my, to your audience is, you have to develop your uniqueness in such a way that you can outperform very big companies mm -hmm. and provide solid answers that aren't just based on your opinion. They're based on facts, structure, and demonstrable proof. Yeah. So thanks for diving into that. And I'm, I'm really interested to hear about where you developed this structure and then how that led to what's on your shirt. And, uh, you know, Monica already, already hinted at getting, some of the cover coverage from Gartner, for those that aren't familiar, Gartner is one of the, the largest research advisory firms and a lot of the Fortune 500 and utility companies who uh, DL2C targets our clients and they listen and respect their, their opinions because enterprise software is very complicated. There's so much to know. Um, so that's context. Can you talk a little bit about that, uh, Michael, in terms of the, the structure piece? Because I think it's a really unique insight. Right, well, you know, you, you have this feeling whenever you're in front of a client and they ask you a question, how, and, and it's the impossible question, right? I call it the impossible question. And that's the question that they ask you because everybody else has given them um, a BS answer that hopefully should get them their next invoice paid. And it's not necessarily true. You don't believe it yourself, but you're trying to do the best you can as a consultant. And I said, well, in order to do better than that, I literally have to solve the problem of how do we give how do we eliminate opinions altogether as a consulting firm? And how do we give solid answers where nobody else on the planet is capable of doing that? Mm -hmm. And that was a very, very tough challenge because um, the clients that we were serving to give you context uh, in your audience context is there are these compliance standards. They look like laws and they look like controls in the energy industry. They were actually written standards 
that if you didn't follow these standards, you could get up to a million dollars fine a day, right? The problem was everybody had an opinion about what that meant. Could you give an example just to contextualize it for people that might not know? What yeah, let's just say. Um, and it doesn't have to be from the industry. Sure, sure, sure. You know, a, a generator must have a protection system um, plan in order to maintain um, energization of the bulk electric system grid that you operate, something like that. And it's right. so general, right? Because it means something a little different for everyone. But so then, then therefore, everybody had a different opinion about exactly what to do. Now, an engineer who is our client wants to have a specific thing that they have to do. And everybody do the same thing. That way it's nice and clear because that's the way a spec works, right? That's the way yeah. a technical deal. That's the way a blueprint works. And that's the way they want to have it. But you don't have that in this subjective type of a deal. So it's extremely frustrating. The, the, the auditor is, an, is the antithesis of an engineer and ne'er the twain shall meet, right? So I had to really come in here and make these two things dovetail into each other as a consultant and say, here's exactly what you have to do. Let me make sure you can understand it. So what we did was we said, you know, what's the commonality between a completely subjective consultant who's selling his opinion and an engineer who wants it torqued down to the last millionth of a micron, right? <laughs> and I said, the, the, the commonality between the two of these in this case is language. You both speak language. You both have to communicate communications degree. And yeah. you both have to come into some understanding about what words mean in both cases, whether you're torquing down a, a generator or whether you're interpreting some language. Language is the commonality. So we took language and we applied an algorithm to language itself, which is to say, tell me the variables within language itself and then I'll get you your spec because you have the specific information in your environment that fits into a general variable that needs to be populated like any algebra equation. And that engineer said that I get. You give me an algorithm, I'll give you data, and you're trying to tell me that I'll be compliant without an opinion? I said, that's exactly what I'm saying. So we did that. We populated that. It worked 100% of the time because even an auditor who had an opinion about the way things could be done could not argue with the fact that it was consistently aligned with the language. So they can say, I hate you. I don't like you. I think you should fail. But the fact is, I have to pass you because this is how it works. And if I'm going to be fair, I have to take your information that fits into the language and, 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 and give you a passing grade. And I figured out that, you know, people get away with murder. Well, people get away with controlling you uh, when you can't defend yourself by any structure and any logical means. If you can present that, then you're almost bulletproof against the darts that are thrown against you. And that's part of what we call risk. And I still call myself a, a risk management person yeah. um, because I'm trying to tell a client, you know, you have these risks coming at you and you have to protect yourself best you can against those risks. Now, there's two different dimensions here. One says, if we do this, we'll have a better company, we'll operate better, we'll be safer, all that kind of stuff. And this is a great thing to accomplish for the world. And that is true to some degree. The other part of this is that it's not perfect in the fact that you're not necessarily gonna be perfect. You're just gonna follow the words better. 
So that if the words aren't complete, you're not going to be complete either. Take this weather freeze in Texas. Yeah. I put it to people like this. God came down and froze Texas. <laughs> and there's not a thing you're going to be able to do about that. You're going to lose power and stuff's going to be really, really bad, right? But there are these standards that say you're supposed to have thought about these things and protected these things and done certain activities that you can prove that you did to show that you did all the right thing. Theoretically, that should mean people shouldn't lose power. But that's not true. People are going to lose power anyway. So then what? Mm -hmm. You still have to show that you tried. And if you can successfully show that you tried with a system like I showed, people still can't touch you, even though you lose power, because you did all that you were instructed to do, and it still wasn't enough. Now the problem isn't you. The problem is those standards that weren't good enough, right? Yeah. So now you're out of trouble, and the standards get upgraded, and then you follow the standards again. So this is the kind of thing that we developed in order to say, Yes, we want to make the world a better place, but we also want to try to protect our clients from being um, unfairly pounded with millions of dollars worth of fines when you have done all that was possible against God to do. Against <laughs> <laughs> God, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's it's really it's really interesting, uh, kind of hearing how you developed this and the application, because there's, you know, you can see this kind of virtuous cycle where you are trying to help protect your clients, the standards are wrong, and then there's this cycle where they get updated and the rules right. and rec get updated to where they should be. Right. And it almost puts the onus back on the, the regulators or the legislators, whoever's writing the standards and the rules. Exactly uh, right. And that's hard to do because they have all the power. Unless you can say something that's absolutely convincing that makes them stop and think, um, you're dead, right? But there was one time where we were in the middle of an audit and the auditor was saying, I want it done this way. I want to see it this way. If you can't show it to me this way, you're going to fail. And I raised my hand and I interrupted and I said, excuse me, I need to pause and I need to call your boss and get you removed from this audit. And he was like, what in the world are you talking about? I said, you're going directly against your training. You're supposed to ask us how we comply. That's not what you're doing. You are saying, do it my way because my way is perfect because I'm the auditor. And I said, you know what? That won't fly. And I got him removed from the audit because that's not what's supposed to happen. You just get power hungry. You get drunk with the ability to tell people what to do because you you have this power over people. It's, it's true of you know, some government officials. It's true of just people who have been getting their way and been able to scare people to death walking in there. And what I try to tell people is the structure of what you do and the ability to tell a good communication story, even in an IT environment uh, or, or any other industry is critical to be able to let you drive the ship the way you know is best. But you have to be able to tell that story in a way that will walk. Otherwise people will walk over you. Yeah. So I wanna, I wanna tie this back. So earlier you mentioned um, that when you're starting off as a small consultancy, you've got to go up against the big guy, right? So this was almost developed as, uh, as partially, one, a better solution, obviously, but it also protected you in the business from, so to speak. And then you also mentioned something about being an African-American couple going into this industry that is, you know, a legacy industry. Can you talk a little bit about that and if that played in or how that has affected your journey 
Um, and I see Monica nodding her head. <laughs> so yes. I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to understand some of the, the challenges that you've had to overcome. Uh, I'll give you my perspective on the issue, okay? First of all, Michael has a very different mind. And that mind is, I don't want to call it a complicated one, but it is one that not everyone understands. I don't even understand. I'm not even trying to tell you that I, (laughs) Uh, but what I will say is this, I've explained to him, I understand what he is attempting to say about standards, dimensions, and what have you. I said, you've got to simplify this. I said, if you can make me understand it and go sell it, we've got something. So what he's not sharing with you, and I know that everyone's not going to get a chance to see this, is that we were at, picture us in a conference room. And all of a sudden he goes, I've got it, I've got it. I see some very common things that fit here. And so what he did is he kind of did what I call the um, third grade diagramming of sentences. And so he started to do that. And he was doing the subject, it would be one line under it, and then the verb would have the double line under it. And then the preposition would have the circle. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, 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 I'm going crazy here. <laughs> and so I said, do something different. I said, just for me, put colors to it. And so what he did is he found a way to color code it. And hence the name of the product, Color Coded, uh, ta-da, but uh, a little bit more with the compliance end of it. So that was a big part of it. And as anything else, we were at a client and we were seeing some of the structures and the patterns and the way things would fit with their evidence for their audit. And so I said, oh my God, this is working. And I start work over and over and over again. And so it was out of the need that a client had that we developed the software we didn't start out as a software company. We started out as a consulting company. But as Michael stated before, we were able to show structure before meaning. And that's kind of what helped out. It did not get us into the door, however. Okay. What got us into the door is us kind of being persistent and calling, like I said, me going to different conferences and meetings and regional um, area meetings and talking to people. And as you said, as a legacy type system, especially in the power utility industry, I just saw no one that looked like me. Um, people were a little surprised to see us in the room and they were like, how did you get here without saying, how did you get here? (laughs) And, um, I understand that language very well, because I'll give you a little bit more of my background in regards to advertising sales. Imagine this African-American woman selling country radio. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Um, I was accustomed to the surprise looks. I will never forget when they recruited me. I was like, I'm not trying to be rude or you know, by saying this, I said, but do you know that I'm black? They're like, yes, we know that you're black, Monica, but you're taking our green dollars. So can you get over here and help us sell country radio? I was like, hmm, country radio in Houston, Texas, the number one and number two station. I can do that. I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified because everything that I had known about the country audience was like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. If I tell you those are some of the best six years that I've ever had, it was difficult. And I had to learn upfront how to overcome challenges. Um, The number one thing that I would get when I would walk through the door is the very same thing that happened when I was in this company, going back into that type of environment. People were like, they talked to me over the phone or they received some correspondence from me via email. And so when I was there to meet them, they would say, Monica? And I was like, yes. Oh, I said, oh, I know. Okay, let's just get it out of the way. I said, I'm not at all what you expected, right? And then there was this uncomfortable pregnant pause, as they say. And I was like, I get it. I'm much taller than you thought that I would be, right? 
<laughs> they're like, oh, thank God. Okay. So <laughs> it dropped their defenses because they already knew that I was not going to be offended by anything that they may have thought but not spoken. And let's just go ahead and get that out of the way, off the table, and let's talk about the value that we can bring to you as a company. And that has uh, really helped because I didn't have that fear. And I think I look back on it now. I was in training for uh, this company that we now own and as to how I was going to handle that because I wish I could tell you that it has gone away, but it has not. Uh, people are still very surprised when they see our faces on LinkedIn or, you know, because we do it. I mean, it's just, it's common. They'll say, okay, hi, my name is Monica Brown. You kind of just go type and you look at LinkedIn, you know, oh, oh, okay. But they talked to us by then. They've got a chance to know us. And so people relax. I mean, it's the very same thing. It's the, the fear is not knowing. And so you want to educate people on the value of what you have, not necessarily just you, because they are buying you as a team as well to come and help bolster them. But we have something that is so unique and that is so different that they see the value to their company and they're like, yes, bring it on, bring it on, very open. I don't care if you are purple. If you will help me out of this compliance situation, I am good. So we've had our challenges, but we don't let that stop us and block us. I think um, I love what Michelle Obama has said over and over again. It's very hard to hate up close. And so once you kind of get to know people and see some of the innuendos that they have and the quirkiness that we all kind of have in our personalities, you look for common denominators among those things. And so we have. But again, as I tell, told Michael, if you can help me understand the process, I'll try to simplify the very complicated language of compliance and put it out there so people can at least find out what it's like to have a simplified compliance application. That's great. Now, I can, I, I love what Monica said. For this, for me, it's a deeply personal issue. Uh, and I'm not sure it is an issue. I have to eat some of my own medicine and some of my own words in this situation. If you talk about race and the um, and the challenges that there are with business, I first of all have to say what I say to everybody else. It's not what you think. Maybe it's not exactly what you think. Um, I think there's a a dimensional comparison between. Um, someone not wanting to do business with someone because of their race and how you operate in order to get what you want. Those sound like very different things, yeah. but they impact the same result, don't they? Mm. Because I put it to you like this, your passion will absolutely trump your race. Mm -hmm. If you think it's a problem, mm -hmm. I have dealt with racist people absolutely racist people. And they wouldn't be shy about telling me that they were. But the point of the matter is, by the time I got to telling what I did and what we were doing and how I did it with the passion I did, they made the mistake of telling racially insensitive jokes in front of me because they forgot. Okay. And I didn't take, and you know, I, I didn't take offense because of one lady that was in my life. Her name is Cheryl Bright, if she ever listens to this one. And I said something to her one time that I was offensive, so I was apologizing. Cheryl, I'm sorry I said that. I didn't mean to offend you. And she looked at me and she sat me down in another chair, taking me somewhere. And she says, Michael, I want to explain something to you. And I said, what is that, Cheryl? And she goes, you can't offend me. Ooh. And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, you can't offend me. You don't have the power to offend me. She goes, I'm not here to be offended. I'm here to do a job and I'm going to do that job. 
and you cannot offend me. And she asked me about three times, do you understand what I mean? She was a black American woman. She goes, do you understand what I mean? I said, I do. I will for the rest of my life. I was scared to death. Thank you, sir. I understand what you mean. You mean I can't afford to be offended when I've got a mission because it's not that important in the, in the crux of things. So I go for what I do with passion that's unbridled and people respect that passion and they respect who I am and what I am, and the rest eventually doesn't make any difference. Have they changed who they were? Not necessarily, and I don't really care. I have served a client in a way, better way than anyone else could, and they appreciate that. The clients that we have served well, it's been 10 years, and some of them are still best friends, good people, references to us and whatever maybe because of how well we did things, but I think because of the passion we brought to what we did. And it was like, you know, come hell or high water, we're gonna help you. We're gonna get you in and through this situation. We're gonna put our whole selves into it. You know, I landed at one client on a Wednesday at their request and I left that Saturday. Mm-hmm. And I tell the story that my secretary said, mm-hmm. um, Michael, again, I need your hotel bills. Where are your hotel bills? You don't turn these things to me on time. I said, there are none. I got there on a Wednesday and I slept in the conference room and we were there until we solved their problem. And and I came back on Saturday and then then I slept and got everything together. So you won't have any hotel bills uh, from this client. And it's kind of like that where we say, you know what? That's the passion you need in order for people to forget all about what color your skin is. So these people were in the trenches in me. Like I said before, we can't afford not to have you as part of this team because of what you represent to our organization. And that's what you have to go for. Forget everything good. else. Mm-hmm. You can't be offended. Do it. Yeah. You have to be that good. You have to be that good. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. And, but it, it, it was it an automatic shift, right? Cause I, I can't imagine that it's easy to go from that. Just someone sitting down and saying, you know, just don't be offended. And then having that passion, like, how, how could someone else foster that? Or what's your advice to um, overcome? Because I'm sure it's not like a sw- flick of the switch, right? These are, there's a lot of emotion and there's just so much beyond just, um, you know, a Actually, fix. William. Or am, actually, I, am William, I thinking about this wrong? No, it, it actually is. You know, okay. we were involved in a multi-level marketing thing one time that, by the wayside, but I took one good thing away from it. In one of these multi-level marketing motivational things, a guy said, um, somebody says that they just can't sell multi-level marketing. And, and, um, and I said to him, he said, change. You've got 10 minutes. 10 or five. I think he said 10 minutes. Change. (laughs) You got 10 minutes. He said, if you can grasp the power of that statement, Mm -hmm. it will change your life. Because as your question was positioned, can you just flip a switch? Yes. Okay. If you decide to do it. Now, if you never decide to do that, that's an impossible thing. Mm -hmm. But if you just say, you know what? I can change ultimately, completely, totally. Why? Because this is what I'm going for. And this is what I need to do. It can save you about 50, 80, 100, $200,000 worth of therapy and a lot of time <laughs> if you can do it in 10 minutes. I'll say something else. It'll put you head and shoulders above the majority of mankind 
if you'd accomplish that kind of thing. And that's the kind of thing that kind of motivates me. Michael, can you be in that one percentile of the planet? That's who I am, period. Call me cocky. That's who I want to be. So if I need to change in 10 minutes in order to achieve my goal, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I feel the, I feel the passion. Okay. <laughs> I, think this, I? <laughs> I think that's a great, uh, you know, segue into thinking about how do you define success, right? Monica, you mentioned earlier on that, you know, the next Oprah, you took a slightly different path, not to say that you aren't going to be the next Oprah, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying that, but how, how do you, how do you both define success today? Wow. Uh, I think the fact that we are still here is very successful. We have had some incredible odds that we've had to overcome. Again, this was not our background when it comes to audits. And although Michael's been extremely inquisitive, as long as I've known him, so maybe I should have thought about it then. But <laughs> in all seriousness, we were not trained to be auditors. Um, I was trained to be in communications. I was trained to um, be in sales and did not have that same training as far as starting a business. And when I tell you I am the person who will read any book you put in front of me to help better who I am trying to be, there is not a book out there. I mean, they get some great advice, but nothing is like just being out there and doing it and constantly having to either pick yourself up, move forward, dust yourself off, move forward, fall for it, just keep going and keep yourself motivated because you never know who you're going to meet. You read and hear time and time again that people said, I was at my wits end and then all of a sudden something broke. That has happened to us over and over and over again. You do have to motivate yourself. Now you have to have a worthy cause. I'm not saying just go out there and just do it because you should have a goal and a mission as to how you're gonna do things. Um, it doesn't always work out that way, but you normally end up in a path that was designed for you to be where you're supposed to be. And I love what Michael said about the change part. I've forgotten about that whole story because I've had to change a lot all the time. And there are oftentimes I'll say, Michael, when are we going to not learn the same lesson? What are we doing differently? What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? I'm that processing person. I process everything. And there are just times when you just think, okay, I am still here. Mm -hmm. We are still here. That's success to me. I wanted to be able to judge it on a financial merit. And trust me, I love that too. <laughs> I, want, I think I'd be happy when I can say I'm not a small business anymore um, because you're in that position where it's like you need to grow, but you also need the finances. Now, that's still a very hard thing because um, it's still questionable as African-American, especially tech owners, as far as financing goes and getting backers. Yeah. A lot of people still expect us to be business to consumer versus business to business. And then with it being a very niche market as far as compliance goes, it's like it's even a smaller yeah. um, hole and they don't understand that. And so it's a little more difficult, a little more difficult to get investors. Um, and then when you do, you're kind of like, do I have the proper education? So I'm trying to find out about venture capitalists and then angel <laughs> investors and meeting people and what's the best thing to do. So there's a lot of learning that we still have yet to grow and learn from, but we're still here and we're still out there. And I never know who is listening to your podcast that could utilize our services. Um, 
just now talking to you and listening to some things from Michael, I'm motivated to go try some new things and say, you know what? I forgot about that. Let's try that again. And that did work because so often you find something that's working and then you get away from it. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. Let me come back to the core of what it is that we do and then start again or then move forward. The one beautiful thing is even if you've learned that lesson, let's just say it's steps one through 10 and you find yourself going, okay, I've made it. I've made it to step 10. Good. I'm going to start back over again. And then something happens. It's not that I had to go all the way back down to step one. Maybe I can go back down to step seven. And then that catapulted me to a different step, maybe to step 20 again. So I'm building and I'm learning. I, my new favorite quote is by Nelson Mandela, where he says, you know what? Maybe this is my success quote. I'll, I like this. And he goes, I never, ever lose. I either win or I learn. And I've learned a lot. <laughs> no, I've had to learn a lot. But that's uh, it's powerful because, again, you just kind of get motivated and say, OK, I am still here because so many companies and Michael and I have seen this happen, especially during COVID. They are gone. Yeah. They don't exist anymore. And we were shocked. Uh, we just knew that they were the big guys. You know, they would be around forever. But we can look back on many retailers that are no longer here. We can look back on many um, financial sources that are no longer around. But I can easily say that we're still here. You know, we're still moving forward telling our story. Good response. And a lot of my friends and associates are not here. Mm -hmm. They are dead. Yeah. And they're younger than I am and they're gone. And so their financial or business success doesn't really matter anymore because they're dead. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a sobering thought because I'm 55 years old and I've outlived a good 15 of my friends and associates who are pretty much on my same track and they didn't make it. Now, before we started the business uh, and working for big four firms, um, I had stroke level blood pressure and I was making fantastic money. Yeah. I mean, if you saw the checks I brought home every couple of weeks, you'd say, wow, this is one really successful guy. And I was headed for the grave too, you know? Yeah. So success, success is being able for me to say, I am doing what I feel that I'm as good as or better than anyone else in the, on the world at doing. And I actually get to do that and I'm happy doing it. And I get to make enough money doing that to feed my family and have them comfortable and have some notoriety. And I think that we're going to be accomplishing some pretty incredible things in this lifetime and my blood pressure is normal. <laughs> That's success to me. Um, you know, interesting, another dimension of that, a friend of mine who's, oh, I don't know, he sells $50 million companies every couple of years or so, said, you know, Michael, you just simply need to have some sort of a number that says I'm happy with that number. And if you can achieve that number, no matter what it is, higher or lower, you're successful. Mm. Um, and, you know, I asked myself if I had $5 billion or if I had $50 million about how much would it take for me to be comfortable, happy, regular blood pressure, have a happy family. And I do have a happy, wonderful, loving family who thinks I'm a fairly good husband, a great dad. and a whole. These are very, very <laughs> successful parts to me. And I wouldn't sacrifice them for a lot of things. And so I have a number in my head and that number is being achieved. And I've been successful. 
because I'm still alive and having all those things together. I haven't yeah. sacrificed too much for working overly or being consumed by those other business aspects, which would have impacted my personal life to the point where I was a very unhappy person. Mm-hmm. I know a very a lot of rich people that are both happy and sad. One is not mutually exclusive of the other. Yeah. It really depends on literally how you have positioned what's really important to you and gone for your purpose in life. Your purpose, which is more than just one purpose, you have different purposes in different seasons. I learned that lesson, right? What my purpose was when I was 25 is not my purpose when I was 55, but I've been happy in both both instances when I knew what I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. You know, knowing a little bit about you too, you had to change what you did in order to be happier in what you did. And the same is true for us in business. You know, even in this business, there are going to be different industries that come to bear where we recognize that the market needs our skills in compliance or consulting in a different area uh, and already has outside of energy. And you got to kind of change and adjust to those things in order to remain successful. But the time you are hating what you are doing, no matter how much money you're making, you are not a successful person in my eyes. So I want to stay successful in the point where I can still keep this wonderful lady by my side and my children and the respect of my peers still do what I absolutely love doing. And I'm able to make a buck at it as well. <laughs> now, let's be clear. Money is important. Yeah. Okay? It's, it's not evil. It's, I don't believe in money being evil. Um, so. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm not what you said. So that was not my statement at all. Um, I don't want people to think that we're just in business to have fun and follow our passions. That's a big part of it. It is very important that you make money, though, mm-hmm. um, because when you have the money, you're able to do different things. We can support different organizations. Um we belong to various ones and we're, it's good to be able to help them out, uh, to give back to the universities that we belong to, um, to help our kids out. And I don't ever want to make light by saying that, oh, you don't need the money, follow your passion. <laughs> Not saying that those two shouldn't go together because they can, but yeah. my passion is eating chocolate covered pecans. And I, ugh, I don't think anyone will pay me for that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it is definitely a passion. I think it was so funny because I was talking to a lady one day and uh, we were talking about money. She goes, Monica, you're right about money. She goes, it cannot buy you happiness, but it can darn sure let you suffer in a much better part of town. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I remember that comment as well, too. I was like, oh, yeah, that's why I'm in sales. OK, yeah. moving forward. <laughs> Have you always had that relationship with money where it's, you know, you recognize, obviously, its importance, but also, you know, I mean, how has that developed over time? And as an entrepreneur, I'm Uh, My background was very different than Michael's. Um, I did not grow up with a lot of money. Um, On that typical story, she grew up with a lot of love in the house. Yeah, I did. But there was not a lot of money. (laughs) It was free flowing for us at all. So a big thing for me was to always um, get a better understanding of money. And that came later. Maybe that was a part of my drive um, in the very beginning for sales was to make a lot of money because I thought that people, when they had money, they didn't have certain problems. And that's still true to a certain extent when you don't have to worry about buying food and clothes and gas. That's very different than thinking about investing. Mm -hmm. So when we, when Michael has been around money a lot more than I have been, and your mindset is different. I think that when you don't have what you consider a lot of money, uh, when you're growing up, you look at 
different people and you want to be like them and you figured if you have this amount in your bank account that that would make you like them and successful and have a better relationship with money. But I have learned so many different things about the way money truly operates. And it's a little scary. And I kind of hate that I've learned it later in life, but I'm glad to be able to teach it to my children. I thought true success meant having a nine to five job, having my 401k in place and a savings account with at least $5,000 in it. And I was good. Um, Since that time, of course, I've learned a lot more. I've learned um, about putting away money, not necessarily in a savings account. I would never tell anyone to do that, but we invest in different things. Mike and I have different philosophies on investing. Um, We still like that 80-10-10 rule. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that, but we like to have at least 80% to go towards our operating capital and then 10% to go towards um, charities or donations. In our case, we tithe. And then another 10% can just be for our other vested entries that we... uh, interest that we want to do, or it could be that um, he decides, hey, I want to invest in this. What do you think about that? That makes me, again, with me being a processor to go and read and figure out as much stuff as I can about that. Um, Michael's a bigger risk taker when it comes to money than I am. Again, <laughs> the way we grew up. Uh, my big thing that I'm very interested in right now are two things, uh, digital currencies. I don't know how much I can go into dive into this, but I am very intrigued with digital currencies like Bitcoin and all the different ones that the new coins that are popping up, not per se because of the valuation they are today, which is very good. Thank you, God. I'm glad I invested. But um, also the fact that I look at different trends among the younger generation. Uh, and the two things that I've noticed is that they're very involved into digital currencies. I mean, for them to have cash is like a joke. <laughs> Nobody carries cash. And I mean, they've been doing this for years. And so I thought about that long before COVID happened. I saw what they were doing with their digital wallets on Apple Pay. And I was like, this is the way of the future. And so I learned and I did a lot more research and got involved with some investing groups um, on digital currencies. And that has paid off very well. The second trend that I've noticed is the the way that we eat, that's changing. And so my daughter is a vegan and I was looking at that and I was very interested in the things like the beyond meat and impossible meat. And so I've been going down that trail to see different vegan products that are coming up and looking at investing into some of those companies. So my take when it comes to investing with money is more at kind of looking at not necessarily the stocks and the bonds and the trade markets. I know you have to do all of that, but I'm looking at some of the trends that my kids are looking at because that's the next generation. And as I see what their interests are, I'm looking and it changes quite often as you already know with that generation. <laughs> um, but one benefit is I'm looking at how their lifestyles will be affected. So when we were looking at the digital currencies and investing in that, along comes COVID. Now nobody wants to touch cash. You know, and now there are many different platforms that are supporting the cryptocurrencies and it's all um, the rage now. But I was looking at stuff long before it happened. So you always try to get in on what you think is going to be good. Same thing with things like Amazon. I was like, are people going to really not go to the grocery store anymore or want to go shop? Now it's the norm. Yeah. So you look for things that are kind of like a little what I call quirky at first. Be like, hmm. And then do more research and make your own decisions on how you want to proceed with that. But you're different. You grew up with money. My parents were as different as night and day. Um, They are both dark skinned, but my father uh, is um, African son of a 
school headmaster and a royal tribe in Nigeria where people came to our house to be judged and, and, you know, and he had a scepter. Okay. I mean, it was, it was, and then my mother was a Kansas small town girl. Um, they met because my father went to college in the United States and they met cultures as different as night and day. <clears throat> he was from, you know, honorable, respectable family that was in line for, you know, the throne of a region uh, there in, in, uh, in Africa. And, and my mom basically was the, you know, offspring of, you know, several generations that came back down through slavery and Jim Crow and, and a small town that was heavily racially prejudiced. Um, wow. The two meeting was, was an interesting thing. Dad was a straight A student that um, was honor student and everything else like that. And, couldn't get a job because he was then dark skinned. So he and my mother went back to Nigeria. She learned the culture, spoke the language of the whole bit. There I was born without the black experience, without the history and everything that went with it. Okay. Transplant us back in the United States. And I still don't have that. I am still basically in my heart of hearts that African, very honorable prince that carries that regal thought and personality with him, okay? And you can't tell me that I'm anything less than that because I already know I am. And I think that kind of exudes out of my personality. Some people mistake it for being cocky. It's not, I'm not cocky, I'm not proud. I'm just very convinced of who I am and there I go, okay? So don't tell me anything different. Um, consequently, I already know that I carry the, the honor and the prestige of generation after generation after generation of a Yoruba culture in Nigeria who was known for their business acumen and for their rakish clothing and for the ability to succeed far and well beyond a whole lot of people around them. If you trace the uh, Yoruba culture back through many, many generations, which even a lot of Yoruba don't know, it really comes from a Jewish trader from Jerusalem named Yariba. Mm -hmm who traded back and forth uh, across the ocean with the African riches and um, loved the African culture, took several African women as wives, formed many, many villages. And each of those wives and compounds formed businesses of their own and they became, they became extremely business conscious. And that's kind of how that culture kind of developed uh, through, um, through many, many generations of African time. Well, I say all that to say for your question of where it comes to money, I simply know that I can be successful. It's genetically coded within me. And I simply know that we can push forward with the confidence of, of what we can do. And I'm not held back by anything, I won't get specific, but by anything that people would assume would hold me back because that's just simply not there. Uh, I know that we can take the talents that God gave us and craft them into what people need and monetize them and be very happy and successful and proud of what we can do and what we can accomplish. And um, it really does take a wonderful partner with you. It happens to be my wife, but she fills a lot of dimensions too. She's also an excellent business partner. Um, I can spin ideas off of her, I can get honest answers and, um, and, and, and couch what I'm going to do with a successful outcome. 
because she has a very different perspective, but a very good one at the same time. So it's not a question of if we'll be successful. It's as we get successful, how we define that and a question of time and sticking to it. When you give up on your dreams, you're going to give up on that success. And I simply know what the end is going to be. So I just simply keep walking into it. What about your relationship with money? My relationship with money? Your investments. Investments, I think, are critical. I think you should absolutely um, put some of your... I'm glad you asked that question. I'm glad you reminded me of this. What I wanted to get into in that was that we are innovators in what we do, right? I used to put 100% of my effort into innovation because they said, if you don't go for it 100%, then you're, you're not going to make it if you really just don't put yourself into innovation. I've come to find out that I don't think that's exactly true. I think you have to innovate, but just understand that the innovation is always very risky, right? And like any investment, you can't invest everything you have in riskiest stuff. You have to diversify to some degree. So yes, while we're innovators and while the innovation is my main objective, I also know that I have to do some things that are fairly boring <laughs> in order to let people understand that um, I know how to do what you're used to as opposed to what is brand new and will change the world. You have to do some of the other two because that is going to pay the bills for your risky investment over there. Um, some of the things that I like right now specifically are uh, with Monica, digital currency platforms, um, some of which have just like profited a lot last year, like 200%, because they, they take a conservative um, uh, approach to, um, to profits much more than you would be able to do in any kind of investment, banking or firm or whatnot. And those are good things to hedge the other more risky things that you are doing with it. So I think the uh, way I approach money and my relationship to money is put some of the money, because we get, you know, we get these wild swings of business. We get huge accounts that pay a whole lot and then we don't get anything for six <laughs> months. And you have to take some of those opportunities to hedge what, um, Hedge some of what you have on that which you know are, are pretty safe but aggressive uh, uh, investments, then you, um, you can take some risks, but not with very much. And then you keep on working, just keep on working and keep on pushing ahead so that you don't go broke in the meantime. We don't have, like Monica says, we don't have these big retirement things from companies we work for for 30 years. So as an entrepreneur, you have to kind of create your own. Mm -hmm. And if you're gonna create some sort of retirement type of situation that you can fall back on later, when I'm not as uh, you know attractive or, or athletic or, or, <laughs> or mentally competent as I will be when I'm 80, <laughs> you do have to kind of take some somewhat conservative approaches to make sure that that part of your life is also thought about um, instead of burning yourself out and then not having any options. Michael's big into real estate as well. Yes, I love real estate. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's boring, but it's great. I mean, it makes, makes <laughs> There's that boring side that you talked about. Yeah. No. <laughs> That's boring sometimes. I'm like, eh. So we talked about some of the good stuff and some of the investments that you're excited about. What about uh, dumbest money mistakes that mm. you've made? Reinvesting into the company um, with some bad partners. Um, hard lessons, but true. 
Um, for me anyway, when not just money, but buying into some of the ideas, maybe with some people that you should not have done business with, when all those bells and whistles are going off in your spirit going, don't do it, but you just need the capital, you know, and then you end up, um, what I call making some dumb mistakes, but you overcome them and you grow from them. You learn once again, as to maybe what to look for the next time you become a lot more wiser, you read contracts differently, even with clients. Um, you'd be shocked. You would think that any person that wanted your product, you would just flock to them like, yes, yes, yes. Cause you want the business. You also have to know when it's not the right business to take. Mm-hmm. And, um, so many new companies, young companies, startups, they just want the business and you end up losing and losing hard. And when I say losing, yes, the money hurts when you lose the money, but when you lose relationships, when you lose the confidence and you start to question, oh my gosh, what did I do? Maybe I shouldn't have done that. And you see what's left behind Um, it can be difficult because Michael and I have had opportunities to be bought. We have had opportunities to do venture capitalist deals. um, And we have decided against some of them. And it hurts at first because you think, okay, wow, I want to be able to do this. But then when you are going to be stripped of the core of everything that you want, you have to ask yourself, is it really good money? Mm-hmm. Every client is not a good client. Every investment is not a good investment. Um, so those are some dumb money mistakes that we've made. Um, reinvesting, like I said, some not just financial, but creative ideas with people. And then they're off to the races with it. So I was extremely excited when we were able to finally get a patent for the software product for Color Coded. And um because what we found is too often we would just be innocent telling people our story and our idea and our concept about what we wanted to do. And by sharing that, someone else would take it and run with it. And their experience in the software industry, their experience in business outweighed ours by multiple accounts. And we had to pick ourselves up, Mm -hmm. dust off and do it again do it differently, um, get more creative concepts and ideas, get smarter about it and get some good attorneys and get some good um, members on your team to surround you and move forward because it could be detrimental. I mean, it could have taken us completely under and out uh, with some people that we've dealt with in the past. So I think some of those moves and really getting to know who you're going into business with, that that counts for a lot. I'd agree with Monica. Um... Investing in ourselves and in our company has been the reason we're standing here today and the reason that we are successful today. And it's at the same time been our dumbest investment. Uh, Both of them are true. We didn't start out with $10 million worth of venture capital money, uh, spending it to eventually, you know, have a good sales department and everything to build up to the point where, you know, we are where some other software companies might be. I'm not saying that would have been a bad idea. I'm saying that we didn't, we didn't know. 
And we didn't choose that because we didn't think it was a good idea then. Mm-hmm. Uh, the jury's still out on that. What is is right? We have literally sold every dollar that we've ever um, made in this company mm-hmm. without without venture capital investment. Mm-hmm. Which some people say, "Hey, congratulations!" I said, "Please don't congratulate us yet." <laughs> I, I'm not sure that I would advise people to do it that right. way. But um, but but that that is what it is. I do think though that my biggest challenge, because we haven't had the opportunity to invest in anything else but ourselves until recently, maybe in the last year or so, and now I'm doing a whole lot more of it. But um, beforehand, we had to put everything into what we were doing. And the biggest challenge in a software company is that development is so expensive Mm -hmm. and it takes so much to hire the people to develop even the technology that's in my brain because I got to get it out of my brain and I can't develop it all. I don't even have the skills to develop it all, even though I was a programmer beforehand. And, you know, platforms and the cost and everything else like that. Do you put every dollar you have into it against the hope in the future of, of selling enough? Or do you hold some back because you don't want to go broke, but then you're not going to be able to serve the next customer that comes along and wants these features or so on and so forth. So Monica and I have kind of had this back and forth where she's like, save some back. And I was like, but that client's coming to save some back. Mm-hmm. And, and I push for being able to do more technology and she'd push for a little more of a conservative approach. Somewhere in the middle, we would, we would land with just what we needed to serve the next client and just enough money to survive. But too many times, it seems, we had to invest so much in that mm-hmm. next client. If that next client didn't really come through, it'd be disastrous. Most of the times they did, a few times they did not. So we ended up with more technology that we couldn't sell mm-hmm. type of thing. So that feels like a dumb move. It really, really does because there goes your money and you can't monetize it. Other times, it's what saved you because if you didn't have that, right. then you wouldn't be able to sell this next you know, million dollar client. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a tough question and a very painful one uh, to answer sometimes because entrepreneurially speaking, you can be your best and worst investment. And what that is, is a week to week thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Downs, they're they are very real. Yep. Very, very real. <laughs> <laughs> well, Monica, Michael, this has been a, a ton of fun. I really, really appreciate your time and sitting down and sharing your story. Um, I'd love it if you could um, leave some final words of wisdom and uh, anything in particular around how to work with a partner. Um, I think that would be really interesting. By partner, I mean, you know, your spouse or a oh. significant other, because I think that that it comes out in the interview and obviously seeing and hearing you and knowing you, I know that how strong you are as business partners, but also in your relationship. And um, I think that to me is something that I really admire uh, about, about both of you among many things that I admire, but one of the things that really, oh, really sticks out. And so I'll let Monica go first. Why? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Mm. There's a loaded question. Mm. It is not for everybody. I want to be very, very clear. Um, There's so many days that I wanted to just be a wife and not be a business partner, especially when it came down to some very tough decisions. Um, When you don't have clearly defined roles, Mm -hmm. it becomes even more difficult. So what we learned is let's have some clearly defined roles and other people involved. 
It can't not just, when it's just the two of you, it's even more difficult. But when you're able to bounce ideas off of other people that are within your circle or your board, um, it makes a big difference as well. But as far as just us being together, we have been very fortunate to have such a strong relationship. It's not fake. It is what it is. And I, I truly do love him. And I think my role, yes, it's as the general manager and as the salesperson, but it's also to be his protector. So many times I've seen where he has created and generated some incredible thoughts to be taken. And I did not want to see that happen. So I became very fierce and I had to be very careful that I wasn't so protected that he didn't have the freedom to discuss things with people. And I had to say, okay, whoa, Monica, don't take away those limitations. You have to find a way that you both can fit into different areas. So when it comes to sales and marketing, it's not exclusive of me. Um, I expect him to do a part in that role as well. A lot of times I'm the one that's going out seeking the business and the clients, but then it's going to be up to him to help us keep them. So those are some very defined roles that we do have. We try super hard not to work past 530. Um, one reason for that is it's time for me to transition to other areas. Um, not necessarily just to go off and cook dinner um, as the happy wife, even though I'm really good at that too. You are, you are good. <laughs> um, I still want that role, but that's what I want. Um, I want to be able to check on my my children and see how they are. I want to be able to have the flexibility to take meetings with other organizations that I'm a part of and not just concentrate on the business. Do we work seven days a week? Yes, I'm not gonna lie to you. Is it all day, every day? No, not at all. Um, there may be a time though, when we are sitting around watching a football game and something will pop in my head and I'd be like, Michael, we should consider this. He'd be like, Monica, write it down. Let's discuss it on Monday. <laughs> Or if he's ready to go for it, we do that as well. Uh, but we have to be aware of the boundaries that we've set for one another. So I would say having some very defined roles mm -hmm. and making sure you're also having fun because it can be stressful. It's so funny because for the longest, some of our clients did not know that we were married because I still go by Monica Brown. Mm -hmm. That was for me. Okay. It's not to disrespect Michael's name. It is not nothing of that magnitude at all. It is simply because I know when I'm Monica Brown, I have a certain role and responsibility that I'm fulfilling. Simply that. When I'm Monica Brown at Aircar, oh, I can relax a little bit. You know, the, <laughs> uh, the claws don't come out or my defenses don't go up as nearly as quick. So um, I think that has been kind of my stand power. And also to have cute little shirts, you know, I like to like that. but no, in all seriousness, I have truly enjoyed our relationship. And I've asked myself, there are days, of course, you're like, is this the best thing to do? Because, you know, if the company's not doing well, that means no one is doing well. Maybe if one of us had a job, you know, we could have steady income. But then the problem there is resentment sets in. Mm -hmm. And I have the ability to know that he's going to come through. I know that he's going to come through. I've seen it continuously yeah. and hopefully he's seen the very same thing with me too. Well, well, that's wonderful. I'd say I'd start out by saying, first of all, everybody thinks Monica's a saint for agreeing to marry me in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> and then they think she's a super saint for being in business with me at the same time <laughs> as a wife. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't shy away from the fact that I'm probably an, 
I won't say difficult. I'm definitely an interesting person. I have to get along with. Uh, I have. I, I sometimes I have trouble getting along with myself in my head. So I know it's got to be tough for her. He's an artist. I, yeah, artistic. <laughs> uh, but I, I would say this: that you know, of course, I love Monica very, very much too. She was my, you know, she's my world. And um, I, I would say that first and foremost, it starts with that. That you really need to know that that's your soulmate and that you're going to make it, you know, good times and bad and whatever, ups and downs and whatever. Um, I've, I've said to her and many other people before that, you know, I've just never met anyone else that I thought I could be, I could live with and be with for the next 80 years and I'd still be happy. I've known a lot of wonderful women in my life, beautiful people too, that I, but I've been new in 20 minutes. I said, I would get very, very tired of you <laughs> very fast. So no. And she's actually the only one that endures to say from the very, very beginning, that first day in the registration line, uh, I kind of had a feeling that she'd be a good one. I don't know if we'd be married or not, but I said, it sure would be nice if we did. So um, I think it really starts with some sort of deep understanding and commitment that this is this is the person I want to be with. And we're going to develop something together. We're different people than we were in the past, but we're at the core the same. Um, I have a very, very strong personality and I'm very, very sure of what I want to do. And I think it's very, very important when you have that. So if you are in a business and people work for you, that's one thing. If you have a wife and a spouse and a partner, you can't run over them. And you can't have such a strong personality that you ignore their identity either, including their role. So um, what I really had to learn to do, and I had to grow to this, is to be able to say, you're my wife and partner at the same time, and I value what you bring to the table. Therefore, I'm going to listen to it. Really listen to it. I mean, really, really take it in, even if it's not the way I would want to go, try to see the value in what would happen. And when I did that one time and just against myself, I said, okay, I'm going to do that. I said, like, I started to look back though at a lot of events and I said, like, you know, there's a lot of times she's been right. And I'm actually wrong and took it on the chin. So it, it's okay. I think it's really all right for me to make this decision and say, go ahead and really listen to it. And if you really, really feel strongly about something, Monica, it's like, all right, let's go that way. That's actually worked very, very well <laughs> because there's sometimes that I can be so hell bent in one direction that I can't see the forest for the trees and she does. We're very different people. And that's very, very good. Say opposites attract and she's an opposite. As an opposite, she sees things that I don't. She talks about it like protecting me and I talk about it like staying focused. But between the two, if you can actually respect a partner and I'm not sure you can really do this with just a business partner. Mm. It's one of the probably benefits, if I can say that at this point, that I can really listen to someone that I know both loves me and is for the business's success. And with those two merged together, let me listen to what you're saying with some different ears. It can endear, actually endear a couple together as opposed to drive them apart. Mm -hmm. um, but you can't be so um, you can't be so um, focused on what you're doing that you ignore the person that's there in the trenches with you. Because succeed or fail, it's both of our personal interest as well as business interest, and that's a new dimension to uh, a couple and their environment. That's important. We actually, when we had an office, 
Oh, yeah. We kind of had a rule. Mm-hmm. When we cross the, <laughs> the threshold of the business office door, right. we need to become business people for the most part. And then when we cross on the other side of that line, we can really dive into husband and wife again right. to the point where, and this is difficult to do, but we tried to do it. We could be having a fight about business in the office. <laughs> you had no right to fight outside the, outside the door. <laughs> business is over. <laughs> Similarly, we could be having a, a personal little fight, a little tiff, you know, personal wise, but you know something, you can't bring that in the office. That'll right. impact the business, yeah. the business success. So you got to leave that alone and at least pretend like we're getting along just fine in the office. Then we can go back to fighting after we get outside the door. Hurry, hurry, hurry. delicate balance to say to say the least it's a delicate balance but then i mean the truth of the matter is as you mature you kind of grow into being able to kind of do both at once Mm -hmm. yeah and that's a little more honest after you've played the roles and really get into the discipline you can kind of do both at once and merge into it but i will know it'll split a lot of people up if you Mm -hmm. don't really have rules and mature and grow to the point where you can do both hand in hand. And those rules change. Um, I'm not just saying that we've set this rule and that's it. Situations and circumstances will come up that we'll have to take a look at that rule. Yeah. And um, I, one thing that Michael says to me all the time, he says, will you consider? And I'm thinking, oh man, <laughs> I just want to say yes or no. He goes, no, but when you say, when you can, will you consider? I have to be open-minded and take a second look, third look, fourth look, whatever it may be at that. So just because you've defined your roles, I think that should be in place, but know that rules necessarily will not be the um, hard standard thing that um, always has to be applied. Last thing I'll say, and Monica overuses this more than she should, I'll go ahead and say this, but we have a concept called generous listening. Oh boy. (laughs) Can I have some generous listening? Can Can you relax your view for a minute and just listen to me, wait till I finish before you respond. Uh, I actually brought that up. She uses about 95% of the time. I use about Wives <laughs> out there use I end up doing a whole lot more general listening than she does, but yeah. but but it just means, you know, just like she says, consider something a minute uh, before we go head to head about it. I like that. The the rules I think really help and delineate the line and <laughs> right. you guys have a have a great, a great dynamic and relationship and um I want to thank you for, for sitting down and um, I really admire, admire both of you and what you've built and, um, mm. and, and consider you really close friends. So uh, thank you guys for sitting down and uh, how can folks uh, support what you're doing? Find DL2C if they have questions, entrepreneurial yes. or clients, business, how can they reach out to you and contact you? Right. Um, for, for us, what you want to do is go to www.dl2c.com. And that's direct line to compliance. I'm Monica Brown, and this is Michael Adeoko. And our main business office number is 713 777 3522. 713 3522 from our old radio days. I was like, know. radio <laughs> voice. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, we take on national, large clients, even uh, clients outside the um, that you're too big or too small. Um, you know, we have very um, um, personal relationships with our clients for the most part because we really want to get into how it is that we can help and bring our uniqueness to the situation more than anyone else in the world ever could. So 
We love you too, William. You've been great oh, for yeah. us. Incredible <laughs> for us. I get so excited when I see you. I'm thinking there's William. It's just on the, an email or a phone yeah. call or a podcast. I was like, it's William. So we so. thank you for being one of our biggest cheerleaders on so many days. And we were like, do we know what the heck we're doing? Here you show up again. So this is going to be very, very good. I'm excited for this and yeah. for you. You need a William Glass in your in your yes, business indeed. career because, you know, when when you think that you're not worth anything some days and mm-hmm. someone tells you just how fantastic that you are you say you know what i think it's worth going on and you know you especially someone whose opinion to respect who's been there and seen a lot right. so um you know thanks again thanks a lot it's yeah, been a pleasure to be you. <laughs> absolutely thank you guys love you guys love All right, you good. too sir on your way out please be sure to share the podcast with others it's the only way that the community grows and others hear these incredible stories from entrepreneurs just like monica and michael i take pride in telling a mix of stories from stories that have never been told to the notable names you know and love. So please do your friends and family a favor and share Silicon Alley. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich. And of course, your host of the Silicon Alley podcast. Hope you have a profitable day. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate.